Before I start this episode, I have I I have I have to warn you guys that there are going to be spoilers. So if you don't want this book to be spoiled for you, please stop listening now. Hi, my name is Juma Khan and you're listening to the first episode of Guy Who Reads, a book podcast. Recently, I read the 1974 horror Carrie, the very first published novel by the king of horror, the legend himself, Stephen King. Carrie is a book about this outcast, troubled teenage girl who has an abusive religious mother. And after she's humiliated by her classmates in the school shower, she discovers that she possesses telekinetic powers. Sue Snell, a classmate of Carrie's and one of the many girls who humiliated her in the bathroom, asks her boyfriend Tommy to take Carrie to the prom to make up for the disgusting thing she did. Carrie, despite having supernatural power and a fanatically religious mother who calls her devil spawn, wants to have a bit of normalcy in her life, so she agrees to go. But Chris Hugginson, the class bully, and her boyfriend Billy plans to play a prank that might turn out to be a little too dangerous, not just for Carrie, but as it turns out, for the entire town of Chamberlain itself. But for Carrie, her real challenge is waiting at home, and she has a knife. This book, it's not just about this girl with superpowers, well, superpower, singular, uh, seeking revenge for the years and years of bullying, of making her the butt of a joke, of tricking her. It's also a book about seeking forgiveness, um, not just from someone else, but from oneself as well. It's a book about... Understanding someone else's condition, their problems, understanding the difference between our lives and how we were raised, and being empathetic towards others, and not degrade them. That's what this story is about. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. Okay. Let's talk about this book. Carrie was first published on 5th April 1974 by Doubleday. When it first came out, it sold 30,000 copies. This was Stephen King's first published novel. Since then, he had gone out to write at least 86 more books. Well, 87, including Carrie. His latest novel is a book called The Institute, where kids with special powers are kidnapped and admitted into a place called, you guessed it, The Institute. Inside, ways to extract their powers are executed by Mrs. Sixby and her dedicated staff. I remember a story that I read from the book on writing by King. And it was, a, it was about Carrie. Um, King was broke when he started writing Carrie. He wrote the first three pages and hated it. So he threw it on his dustbin. The next day, Tabitha, or Tabby as she's often called, who is the wife of Stephen King, uh, saw the three pages and fished it out. She told King to pursue it, helped him with it too, and then later it became a bestseller. But not just that, Carrie made King who he is today. If Tabby never fished out those three pages from the dustbin and if she never told her husband to pursue it, the world probably wouldn't have Stephen King today. 
he would still be a broke writer writing short stories for magazines. He wouldn't have the confidence, the support. He wouldn't even have a typewriter. He was using Tabby's typewriter when he wrote Kerry because he was broke. You know the phrase, behind every successful man there is a woman? That is very true for Stephen King. And he knows it too. In the 80s, King was an addict. He was drinking alcohol, snorting cocaine. It was so bad that he doesn't even remember writing Cujo. So Tabitha, tired of his shit, asked his friends and family to come and she organized an intervention, showed him the evidence of his addiction and he got help. He became clean. Tabitha is a queen man and she is underrated. Not many people know that she is a writer too. Anyway, since then King have come a long way. He is one of the few select authors who is a millionaire. That's quite an achievement. Not many authors have been able to pull that off. In his 46 year long career, he has written at least 87 books. And I'm saying at least because that's how Google phrased it. So it could be more than that, but not less than that. He has written so many books that even Google isn't sure. Some people don't even read 87 books in their entire lifetime. And it all started with this one. Carrie is categorized as a horror novel. But I don't really say it as horror. I say it more as a science fiction thriller than horror. I mean, there are no ghosts in it. No demons. No haunted hotels. Just a 16-year-old teenage girl soaked in pig's blood, destroying her town by using her telekinetic powers. Anyway... Uh, this book is banned in schools across the U.S. because of the profanity, underage sex, the violence, and the negative portrayal of religion. The profanity, underage sex, I get it. Even though it wasn't as bad, I get it. I also get the negative portrayal of religion. See, I'm from India. People get crazy here when it comes to religion. What I don't get is violence. Really, bruh? Violence? Have you heard about kids in the U.S.? They play Call of Duty Warzone. They shoot people to the ground in those video games and then go and have lucky chums for lunch. Trust me, these kids can survive a book about a mother stabbing her daughter in the shoulder. This was my um, sixth Stephen King book. He's one of my favorite writers and I consider his book Under the Dome to be my favorite novel. Apart from Under the Dome, I have also read The Shining, It, Pet Cemetery, and On Writing. If you are someone who have read books like The Shining and It and Under the Dome, then you wouldn't like reading Carrie. When you're reading a King novel, you go in with expectations. And if you go in, if you go into Carrie with those expectations, you will most likely be disappointed. Carrie was his first novel and it's sloppy at part. It shows that it's his first novel. Even though it's a good book, it's not entirely on the King level. I gave it 3 stars. I liked reading it, the story was great, not going to lie, but it was a little difficult to read. But I've always liked the story. I saw the 1976 adapted movie with Sissy Spacek, Piper Laurie and John Travolta and I loved it. I also loved the 2013 remake with Chloe Moretz and Julian Moore. I didn't like the remake as much as I loved the 1976 movie, so I always loved the story. Um, and as great as the story was, I wasn't expecting, I was expecting the writing would match it, but it didn't. But 
Stephen King obviously have come a long way and he writes great book. A unique thing about this book is that it's not just a story with a third person point of view. There are also excerpts from different articles in different books that were written on Carrie and her telekinesis and the prom where we know from the start that something bad has happened. These excerpts give us a little bit more insight into her power and her history, her mother's history, survivors of prom describing Carrie and what happened. And there's a lot of foreshadowing that happens. One of the books that reoccurs throughout the story is a book called The Shadow Exploded, which is a book about what happened. But there's also a book called My Name is Susan Snell, written by Sue Snell, the third most important character in the book for me. And she tells her side of the story and what role she played in Carrie's life and what happened at the prom. The book starts with one of the most famous scenes that Stephen King has ever written. The shower scene. After the gym class, the senior girls of even high were in the shower where they get little to no privacy. Now, this is a thing that I never understood. Why do schools in America make students shower together? I know, I know it's probably not as bad as it was in the 70s or 80s, but you guys still make students shower at school. Why? We had a similar thing to gym class over here. It was called PE, but it happened towards the end of the school hours. So sweaty children can go back to their own house and shower at their own bathroom and not be naked in front of other children, some of which were bullies. I don't know who in their right mind thought that it would be a great idea to do that in America. Anyway, <laughs> got a little bit sidetracked there. Uh, so Carrie, Carrie's in the shower. Her mother, who is a fanatically religious person, doesn't want her daughter to shower with the other girls. She says it's this. Uh, she says it's a sin, but Carrie wants to be normal. She has spent years being the butt of every joke, getting tricked, getting teased, so she does it anyway. Now, in that shower, Carrie White, who is 16, year o 16 years old, gets her first period, which if you're a guy who doesn't know much about menstruation, 16 is very late to get your first period. Usually it happens when you're 11 or 12. So there's blood rolling down her thighs, and she doesn't see this, but the other girls do, and they start pointing and laughing. Chris Hargensen is later pointed out to be the ringleader. Now, as unusual as it is getting your period at 16, it is more unusual that a teenage girl wouldn't know about it. But that's what happens. Carrie White has no idea what menstruation is. So while everyone is laughing at her and pointing at her, she has no idea why. Then a girl starts chanting, period, period. They also start throwing sanitary napkins and tampons. The chant quickly turns from period to plug it up. But Carrie White still has no idea what's going on. She just knows that the joke is on her, like always, but she has no idea what it is. Sue Snell is the first to realize that Carrie might not know what's going on. She feels a bit of pity, but she also feels disgusted. And I guess maybe the peer pressure was too high, so she also went along with everything. She yells at Carrie that she's bleeding. Carrie looks down and sees the blood. She freaks out. She backs away and falls into the ground near the shower compartments. Now, listening to the girls chant, their gym teacher, Miss Dejardin, who is a fairly new to the teaching profession, she bolts in. 
sees the blood coming down Carrie's leg and yells at her something along the lines as, What the hell is wrong with you? Use a sanitary napkin. You're bleeding. Carrie, crying her eyes out now, says to Miss Desjardins that she's bleeding to death. Miss Desjardins realizes what's happening. And when she does, she takes pity on her. And as she tries to calm her down, the light bulb overhead bursts on its own. And Miss Desjardins for a few seconds think that stuff like that always happens around Carrie when she's stressed. Now, Miss Desjardins manages to calm Carrie down. She had to use the sanitary napkin on Carrie by herself and when she is calmed, she takes Carrie to Mr. Morton to the, the vice principal. Sorry, there was a car passing by. Uh, but she takes Carrie to Mr. Morton, the vice principal, who allows her to go home. When Carrie leaves, Miss Desjardins tells Mr. Morton what happened. Still surprised that Carrie didn't know about periods. When Mr. Morton realizes who Carrie's mother is, he isn't all that surprised. Mr. Morton asks for names of the girls that did the disgusting crime. Ms. Desjardins gives it to him and he allows her to give them a punishment worthy of their crimes. Crime, not crime, sorry. As Carrie is walking home, the incident from the shower is playing at her head. As anyone would, she was traumatized by what just happened and... As she is walking on the other side of the road, there is a five-year-old kid who is on a bicycle and he is calling Carrie names. Carrie looks at her a little fiercely and he gets knocked out of his bike. Now, this is the first time that she realizes her powers. Things have happened around her in the past, but it was never like this. It seems like after she gets her first period, her power becomes a little more controllable. So as she is walking, she tries to use her powers again. And something in her mind flexes and a little something happens. The power is there. It's weak, but it's there. Sorry, there was another car. I don't know why they, they're just passing at midnight. Um, yeah, sorry. And yeah, the power is there. It's weak, but it's there. And Carrie realizes this. Now, as she approaches her house, she remembers that she remembers the time when she first unknowingly used her power. She was three years old. Margaret White's neighbor was this woman and her daughter. Her daughter used to play loud music and Margaret, being as religious as she is, reprimanded them and told them that there was a special place in hell for them. The next day, the daughter sunbathed in her yard wearing a one-piece swimsuit. And there's loud music playing again because Margaret's neighbor wants her to say something. The daughter dozes off and when she wakes up, a three-year-old Carrie is standing next to her. Carrie points at her breast and asks, What are those? She tells Carrie. And Carrie says, I wish I had them. The girl says, You will. You just have to wait a few years. Now, this is when a confused look comes on Carrie's face. She says, No, I won't. Mother says only bad girls get them. To this, the girl replies, Well, doesn't your mother have them too? She says she was bad when she had me. And so she has them. She calls them dirty pillows. Yeah, no joke. Margaret White calls breast dirty pillows. Now, Margaret White comes out of the house and sees them talking. And she becomes crazy. Not that she wasn't already, but now she's shoving and dragging Carrie and beating her. She pushes Carrie into the house and she tries to murder her. Margaret gets a knife and tries to cut her daughter's eyes for looking at a woman's dirty pillows. This is when Carrie first uses her power at an extensive level. 
She doesn't know she's doing this, but the windows at White's residence is now rattling. Furniture is moving on its own. And this just this huge commotion. The neighbors come out to see and a huge mahogany table breaks the window and comes flying out of the house. And then the stones come from the sky. They fall on their house, does serious damage. Uh, these stones only fall at their property. Margaret knows that Carrie is doing all of this. She calls her witch and devil spawn. But she's also scared of Carrie. When everything comes down, they never speak of it again. Margaret hires people to clear the rubble and fix the house. Looking at the house now, you wouldn't be able to see the evidence of the mysterious hail of stones. The neighbors that were present that day still remember it, but the local newspaper never believed them. Back to the present day. Inside the house, Carrie waits for her mother to come home from the laundromat where she works. When Margaret White enters the house, she looks at Carrie. She knows what happened. The school called her. So Margaret says, So you're a woman now. Carrie tries to get an explanation out of her. Why she never told her about menstruation. She also tells about she also tells how the girls made fun of her, laughed at her, threw things at her. Margaret just steps in and slaps Carrie across the face. See, according to Margaret, good girls don't get periods. If you get periods, that means you have done something sinful. So she beats Carrie and shoves her and drags her across the house to the closet. The closet is where Margaret sometimes locks Carrie in and tells her to pray. There are pictures of God and angels, but it's scary. In the past, sometimes Carrie was locked in the closet for days without food or water. She just had to sit there in her own waste. But today, she wasn't having it. As her mother tries to force her into the closet, she yells out the word suck and fuck. Margaret White calls press 30 pillows. So you can imagine her reaction to hearing the F word. She manages to force Carrie inside the closet. Locks it and Carrie is left there crying for her, crying her eyes out. She was later allowed to come out. The next day at UN High, during gym class, Miss Dejardin lined all the girls involved in yesterday's abuse on Carrie. Their punishment was a week's detention. Those who failed to show up at this detention wouldn't be allowed to go to prom and they would also get three weeks suspension. Chris Hugginson, who is a certified brat with a rich lawyer father, was called as the ringleader of yesterday's crime by Miss Desjardins. She refused to attend the detention and an angry Miss Desjardins shoves her. It's kind of funny to read how a shove from a teacher is such a big deal to these kids. Over here I have seen a male teacher punch a 14-year-old girl in the face because she got a mathematical answer wrong. And that girl never complained to anyone. And that teacher a few years later, became the principal of another school in Guwahati. Why did we never complain here? I was slapped so many times, pinched in the ears so many times. But I did complain once. I mean, not really. So when I was in kindergarten, our class teacher was punishing us for some reason and she had a stick. So she hit me with a stick on my back and it was bruised. It bruised, sorry. <laughs> So later that night, when I was having dinner with my family, my father brushed against me and he touched the area where she hit me and I winced. He noticed it and wished to see. And there was this huge bruise on my back. So the next day, he went and complained to the principal. But I never wanted to complain. I don't know why. 
Anyway, I'm back to the story. So Chris never attends any of the detention because she is offended by Mr. Jardin's shoving her. And her father on another day comes to the principal office to threaten the principal. He puts two choices in front of the principal, either Chris to be allowed to attend prom or they will sue on the counts of Mr. Jardin abusing his daughter. The principal, I love this guy by the way, he plays a reverse Uno card. He says that if you decide to sue, we will counter-sue. Your daughter abused a girl named Carrie White and we will take her to court for it. The father had no choice but to leave. Let's take a little break right here and we'll be right back. Let's take a look at Sue Snell now. Okay, she's conflicted. She feels disgusted in herself for doing what she did and wants to do something to help Carrie. But she also thinks that she shouldn't do anything. But her conflict was solved by her boyfriend Tommy Ross who told her to help Carrie. So on another day, she goes to his house and asks him to take Carrie to the prom, which is a weird request. But her thought behind it was that Carrie would feel normal, she will socialize and also she would have the sense of being a part of something with someone she likes. And Carrie likes Tommy. Sue says that she knows Carrie has a crush on Tommy, she had seen the way she looks at him. Tommy agrees to take her. At first I was confused as to why, but I think he knows what it means for Sue and he has no problem with Carrie, she might even be pleasant. As all of this is happening, Carrie is at her house, taking a week's leave from school. When she's alone in her room, she's trying to control her powers. The power, which was very weak a few days ago, is strong enough now to lift furniture up and shake them. So after a week, she goes back to school and Tommy asks her out to prom. She thinks she's getting tricked, but Tommy assures her she's not, so she reluctantly agrees. That evening, she tells her mom that she is going to prom, who forbids her to do so, saying that teenagers who engage in those things end up in parking lots and have sexual intercourse. She tries to get Carrie back into the closet to pray, but this time Carrie doesn't let her. She shows her her power, threatens her, and tells her that she will be going. They both knew that Carrie had powers, but this was the first time that she showed her mother her powers intentionally. Both of them now couldn't pretend otherwise. So Carrie was going to the prom. That was fixed. Whether her mother likes it or not. It's not like she can do anything about it. She couldn't force her like she used to. Let's take this time to give you guys a little backstory about Margaret White. Margaret White's grandmother had the same power as Carrie. Though her daughter and granddaughter didn't. In an excerpt from the book, telekinesis is genetic. It's a recessive trait that, that's only dominant in women. And when a woman who has that gene mates with a man who is a match for that gene, their offspring, if it's a girl, will have TK or telekinesis. That's why Carrie had it, because Margaret White carried that recessive gene and when she made it with Carrie's father, Ralph, who was a match, gave birth to Carrie, who later possessed telekinesis. Margaret, Margaret's mother was Judith Brigham. When her father died, Judith remarried a man called Harold Allison. Though Margaret never accepted this relationship, she said that her mother was living in sin. 
1960, Margaret moved out to Chamberlain with a man called Ralph, who was a construction worker and a fundamentalist Christian like Margaret. According to her, they weren't living in sin because Ralph and she weren't having sexual intercourse. But that's not entirely true because they did have sex. Twice. The first time it was when they weren't married. And after this, Margaret tried to kill herself for indulging in sin. The second time after they were married, he had this look in his eye and Margaret sent him away. When he returned, he was drunk and he forced himself on her. And Margaret later revealed to Carrie that she liked it. Then she became pregnant with Carrie, but before Carrie was born, Ralph died in a construction accident. Which just goes to show what a hypocrite Margaret White was. Okay, back to the present day. So, Carrie starts suing her dress because she likes to sue. Let's look at what Chris Hoganson is doing. So, ever since she got the punishment, she's been trying to find a way to get back at Carrie. And when she finds out that Tommy Ross is taking Carrie to the prom, she devises her plan. Chris Hoganson's boyfriend is Billy Nolan. And something is really wrong with this Billy Nolan. He's like a psychopath. Stephen King could write him as a serial killer and people wouldn't question it. So Chris asks her boyfriend Billy to go to this farm with his friends and bring back a bucket of pig's blood. Pig's, pig's blood. Sorry, I thought I missed. I thought I mixed my P and P's. Anyway, uh, and he does just that. Except his friends don't know what the blood is for. Just him. And when he, when we are reading this scene of this book, Billy thinks something, and then he later says it out loud multiple times. For me, it's the most memorable line in the entire book. Pig's blood for a pig. Yeah. Carrie tries on her dress in her room. It's red, which is the color her mother forbids her to wear. It's the color of the devil, she says. Margaret tries one last time to stop Carrie. That if they just go knee-bound together and pray, everything will be okay. God will forgive them. But Carrie, using her power, pushes her out of the room and shuts the door. On prom night, Carrie is sitting on the porch anxious while her mother is praying extensively inside the house. And then Tommy Ross picks her up. Susanel is at her house, anxious too. She is worrying what if he falls in love with her and then laughs at her own silliness. But she is also worried about another thing. Her period is late. At prom... Carrie feels like herself, maybe for the first time ever. She's interacting, making jokes, making conversation. She's just 16 years old. She's a kid with a mentally unstable, religious, abusive mother. She's a kid who has supernatural powers. But she's still just a kid. And at the prom, she feels like one. She feels normal. She didn't know that there was a conspiracy going on, a trick that was being pulled at her right at that moment. See, Chris Hargensen and her friends rigged the voting of King and Queen. They rigged it so that Carrie and Tommy would win and go up on the stage where they would stand at a marked position. It would be then <coughs> that the pig's blood, which would be hanging near the lights directly on top, would fall on Carrie. That was Chris Hargensen's prank. That was her way of getting back at Carrie. The voting for King and Queen began Billy has gone and set up the bucket of pig's blood on its position. Now, he and Chris are on their car waiting for when they would announce the result. So Chris can go back and flip the bucket. 
The result of the voting was a tie between Carrie and Tommy and another couple. So the voting happened again between just these two couples and Carrie and Tommy won by just one vote. They went up on that stage, they had a moment of glory until the bucket flipped and dropped the blood directly on top of Carrie. The bucket also fell and hit Tommy on the head and he fell down unconscious. Maybe he was concussed, we don't really know for sure. Carrie, her eyes closed, was silent. She knew she was tricked, that someone had played a prank on her. When she opened her eyes, everyone at the audience started laughing. When I read this scene, I had a flashback. I had a memory from when I was 14 or 15. I was in school and I was heading towards the bathroom. And I saw there was a crowd on the entrance and exit of the boys' bathroom. And they were laughing. I joined them and I looked inside. There was a kid who was maybe 8 or 10 years old. He wasn't wearing any pants. He was standing there in the middle of the bathroom where hand pump was. Hand pump was. Um, the boys' bathroom had a hand pump in the middle of it because the toilets didn't have tap water where students could directly get the water and clean themselves and, and their waste. So whoever wanted to use the toilets, and rarely anyone did, most of us only had to pee so we used the urinal, but whoever wanted to use it had to get a bucket and then fill it up with water from the hand pump and then go inside and do their business. So what happened with this kid was that he went and did his business and forgot to get the water. So he came out without wearing any pants and started to use the hand pump. But he was struggling with it. He's only 8 or 10 years old, I don't know. And that's when the bell rang and all of us came out for our break. I remember all of them laughing, pointing and shouting and making fun of him. And he just stood there, defeated, and looked at him and... I don't know why, but anyone who looked at him could see what he was feeling and take pity, but no one did. They just laughed and laughed. Because stuff like this didn't happen a lot, and when it was not happening to you, it was funny. I wanted to join in on the laughter too. I remember this very well. I almost did, but my pity for him was greater. I was the first one to go inside. I took the handle for the of the hand pump and started pumping his water. I'm very proud of myself for that. Priyash Brahma, shout out to Priyash Brahma, who was a classmate of mine, followed suit and he got the kid inside the toilet and told him to lock the door and we would bring him water. When we did this, the laughter died down. Students started getting inside. They had this ashamed look on their faces. But at least most of them did. Some were still laughing. So when I was reading this scene, I associated the laughter from the audience to the laughter from the kids outside the bathroom entrance and exit. Even they didn't know why they were laughing. Carrie was, well, she was stunned. She started heading for the exit and she slipped and fell as she was trying to do that. And the laughter rose even more. Miss Dejardin made her way to Carrie but she was laughing with the rest just a moment earlier. Carrie knew it was false modesty because telekinesis wasn't just her only power. She was also telepathic. So Carrie made a gesture with her hand and Miss Desjardins was pushed back. She was out of the auditorium and then she realized that she had pow- uh, that she had powers. I think you might, guys might be a little confused right here. So what I said was Carrie made a gesture with her hand and Miss Desjardins was pushed back. And then Carrie, she got out of the auditorium and then she realized that she had powers. 
that she could take revenge now on all of them for laughing for years and years of making fun of her. So she goes back again. Only this time she uses the she she uses her power to close the exit, and she turns on the sprinkler system that wets everyone who is inside. She started turning on more nozzles, and it was raining inside the or inside the auditorium, and a live wire fell somewhere, and now there was a fire. And everyone was locked inside. Some did escape, including Miss Desjardins, but almost all of them died, including Tommy Ross, who was unconscious when it was all happening. Then she started walking back home, but along the way she started wreaking havoc to the entire town of Chamberlain. Sue Snell was making her way to the prom when the fire alarm went off, and she saw the school burning. She knew instantly that Tommy was dead and that it was Carrie who did this. And it was not just Sue who knew that. Almost everyone who was nearby knew that it was Carrie. Even though they didn't see her do it, they just knew. There were several explosions, several fires that started. And there was no way of controlling them because Carrie also destroyed the fire hydrants and the water was gone. It was until much later in the night that fire trucks were able to control it. 440 people lost their lives that night in Chamberlain. But Carrie's story doesn't just end there. See, when Carrie left for prom earlier that night, Margaret White started thinking and planning. When Carrie returns home, she was going to stab her to death, like she should have done years and years ago. And Carrie, she's going back home to kill her mother, and then her carnage will stop. When she gets home, Carrie and her mother gets into a physical altercation, and Margaret does manage to stab Carrie in the shoulder. Margaret also reveals to Carrie how she was conceived, a product of rape, a product of the sin of fornication. She was destined to be evil, according to her mother. Carrie kills her mother by stopping her heart, literally stopping her heart. Now, Chris Harkinson and Billy Nolan, they left before Carrie could unleash her rage. They left to a, for a tavern called The Cavalier in Chamberlain. And as Carrie started destroying the town, they were unaware. They were woken when it was all done by Billy's friend Jackie Talbot, was present when Billy slashed those pigs for their blood. He made the connection between the blood and Carrie and told them about what Carrie had done. Afraid of being arrested for the connection with the pig's blood, Billy sent Jackie away. He told them he would take care of it. Chris and Billy didn't believe Jackie even after seeing the town burning. But as they were pulling out of the tavern, there was Carrie in front of them. Billy tried to run her over but Carrie made the car hit the tavern and seconds later the car exploded killing Billy and Chris. Sue Snell after she saw her school burning and knowing that it was Carrie who did it she set out to find her. She knew that Carrie had gone home to murder her mother. She couldn't tell you how but she knew it. She knew that Carrie's mother was dead already. She also knew that Carrie was badly injured. She saw the trail of Carrie's blood and followed it. Sue found her. Carrie was lying on her sides near the tavern, dying. Sue touched Carrie's unhurt arm and moved her to, the, to her back. They had an entire telepathic connection. Entire telepathic conversation, sorry. Carrie started accusing her of tricking her, but Sue told her to look inside her, and so Carrie did. And Sue did have disgust for Carrie, but she had no ill will for Carrie personally. And it was because of this that Carrie didn't kill her. Carrie started crying for her mother. Sue, their minds still entangled with each other, listened to her cry for the mother she just killed. 
She tried to Sue tried to disengage but was unable to. She felt Carrie dying. She listened to her last thoughts and then there was silence. As Sue was walking back, she got her period. There was an investigation done by the government formed uh, there was an investigation done by the government formed board called the White Commission. They tried to sweep it under the rug, tried to make it like there was nothing supernatural about it. But when it ended, they weren't able to do that. The evidence was extraordinary. But they did manage to say that it was an isolated incident. That there was no need to worry about something else being telekinetic, someone else being telekinetic and telepathic. The book ends with a letter from a woman to someone else. And in the letter, the woman writes about her little daughter and that she saw her play with marbles. Only she wasn't touching them. And that's where the book ends. Thank you for listening. Join us next week where I talk about Paper Towns by John Green. And I will also release another bonus episode where I talk about Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets with a friend. If you haven't already subscribed to us, please do. It helps a lot. Also follow Guy Who Reads Podcast on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening again and I hope you guys have an amazing day.